was great. It was great. Uh, yeah, I'll talk to you later. But it was, it was fantastic. I had a great time. It was, it was awesome. Hello, church. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. It is, I don't know, is it summer yet? Is it like summer solstice yet? Somewhere around now. Any, was it? Close. We're close to being there. All right. Um, I have, uh, I picked out a few songs for us today, and uh, the moral is, uh, is Jesus. So everything is very Jesus-centric, so it's a great set like that. Um, if you lived in the 90s, you'll know the first song. It was very popular at church then. Tell you what, how about we, how about we stand up? You 
church family. I'm Deb McCormick and I'm going to do this morning um, any moments this week that you've seen or in recent time that you've seen God moments. You've seen God at work and, um, and you'd like to share it with us. So if you would like to share just um, raise your hand or stand up and I'll come to you. And if there's anyone on Zoom um, just uh, share in the chat and we'll highlight you. I'll start out this morning with, um, I've seen God work in our family, our son and his wife and our um, little eight-month-old grandson, they all had COVID. So first time the baby's sick, you know, so we're all on high alert. Um, and they just, they're fine. They all came through and the baby had the lightest part of it all. And also, um, where God showed himself is I was able to called Bo because I knew his family had just gone through this with their baby and he was great encouragement and prayed with me on the phone and um, so praise God this is just wonderful and I just think it's uh, grateful for the miracle of how we all heal 
So anyone else have something to share this morning? All right. Good morning, church. My name is Sharon. Last night I went to a party. I think it's the first party I've been to in like three years <laughs> in person. And there were a lot of people there that I've seen on Zoom during the past year, but I've never seen them with a three-dimensional face or arms or legs. And like my heart was just so full of joy, just being with people. These are friends of mine uh, who are active in the Sunrise Movement, Green New Deal, climate change, and it was just wonderful energy, and it was great to be there, and I thank God for the opportunity to be in person. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah, you can't beat in person. <laughs> Anyone else have anything to share? and then I'll come back to you. Just. Don't want the butcheries to monopolize this, but uh, <laughs> this weekend the elders had a retreat over at Sandra and Bill's place, and um, I won't tell you all the details of it, the elders and the pastors, uh, but uh, one of the things that really struck me was, was really, it was, it was like a small group experience as we just shared what God was doing in our lives, and uh, and it reminded me of this scene. I don't know if you've seen The Chosen or not, but there's a scene where Jesus is, is preparing to say the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And he looks over and he sees his disciples who are kind of squabbling in most of the episode, you know. And he looks at each one of them as he's saying one of the Beatitudes that they weren't saints yet. <laughs> they were ordinary people like you and me. And as I'm looking at the elders, you know, and small group same thing you know it's like these people that we journey together and we sometimes rub against each other and things like that but but it's like God's called us and chosen us and just to see one another with God's eyes with the love that God has toward us God loves each and every one of us so much and I'm just really grateful I got to kind of bask in that love this weekend That's wonderful. Oh, got this gentleman here. Um, Diane and I have a brother-in-law named Bob, and he's 74. He's a Vietnam vet, and about seven years ago, he was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and um, it's attributed to his service in Vietnam. But he's been battling it for all this time, and uh, he's had, or at least twice in the past uh, time, he's, we've just written him off. We thought, well, he's, we're gonna go to his funeral, you know? But he always rebounds, and he comes back, and, he, and he's, he's a real fighter, and he, he is, he has been saved. He's been saved for about a good 30 years. And uh, so this past spring, he's like been really sick and really, um, really like on the ropes and just the other day we found out they gave him a, a new treatment I think it's some sort of steroid and he feels great he's just like uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a miracle he's a real fighter and uh, thank you Jesus yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Okay, we've got Nasha on Zoom. Good morning. For some reason, it won't let me start my camera, but um, for those of you, of you that don't know, I'm also an elder. And um, kind of to piggyback on what Dan said for our retreat this weekend, this season of my life, there's been a lot of challenges, but a lot of good too. Um, and over pretty much the course of this year, just little nuggets of things that have been kind of popping up. And I love the fact that when we had our elder retreat, um, there was a portion where we had to kind of share and go around the room and talk about things. And all these little nuggets that have popped up since January, you know, the date of uh, Friday when the retreat started, things over the past couple of months were applicable to the situation um, and resonated with me what other people were saying. So I was able to share information. So it was just really encouraging that even when we don't know it, um, God is talking to us. And we can't always dismiss the things that he's saying to us because sometimes those are things that we need to share with other people for his glory. Um, so I just wanted to share that just to, to know that he talks to you. Um, and even though it may not be something that's like, oh, that's just something, you never know how that can impact someone else or that someone else might be dealing with something that you know your experience or your thoughts or how your conclusion you came to may benefit someone too. That was all. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Nasha. All right. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you for who you are. We're so grateful for this time together, for this home of worship, Father. We're grateful. And thank you for this, uh, for the miracle of healing. But Father, we um, pray for those in our family and those um, that are not um, totally healed yet. We pray for perfect healing. We pray for ease of pain and comfort. It's all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And, and then I um, this morning like to release the Summit and Treehouse Kids. All right, here we go. We have we have one more song for you, my Jesus. Why don't you stand on up? Jesus is love. 
Hi, I'm Sophie. And I'm Charlotte. And, and welcome to Genesis. Please take a moment to fill out the um, physical green card, which should be in front of you. Or the digital green card, which you can access by going to our website. If you are new to Genesis text, new to Genesis, which is all one word, no capital letters, and send it to 94000. You can place the physical green card in the wooden box at the back of the sanctuary. This is also where you can place your offerings. Also, are you willing to host a gathering in your backyard, a bonfire, picnic, or other fun things? If interested, contact Pastor Nate to set a date. Redeeming Heartache, how past suffering reveals our true calling. 
Tragedy and pain inevitably touch our lives in some way. We long to feel whole, but more often than not, the way we've learned to heal, to learn to heal it with our wounds pushes us away from the very restoration we need most. Counselor and teacher Kathy Lores will be presenting a life-changing process of truth, connection, and healing with ourselves, God, and others. Join us Saturday, June 25th from 9, 9 to 2.30 p.m. Register on the website. Now, say hello to your neighbor. Good morning. Hey, great talking. Glad you're here today. They did an awesome job. Uh, as they mentioned, we've got that Redeeming Heartache uh, training coming up in less than two weeks. Kathy Lorzell is coming in to do that. I've got two books here that kind of gives you content. If somebody wants one, it's yours to kind of prep. If you're like, hey, I'm thinking about it, but I don't know if I, you know, what's about. You can get that. Or you can just look at the table of contents. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be really good. We'd love for you to come. Uh, and then uh, two books that are informed the teaching for today. The series we're in called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. It's by Brian Zand. And then because we're talking so much about hell, anybody who wants to take a deep dive into it figuratively, um, her gates will never be shut. Her gates will never be shut. Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem by Bradley Jerzak. This is awesome for anybody who's looking to like um, really jump in. So we're, what we're looking at today, and because it's discussion day, um, with this content around these ideas around hell, we could be in hell for the next two or three years with content, but that would kind of be a little weird. So... Um, Today we're going to be talking about this, but anybody who's like, I, 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 this is a big deal, this is an issue for me, this is, I got PTSD from certain things. If you, if you want to learn and take a, a beautiful dive into with the scriptures and history and tradition, this is an awesome book for that. So Jesus, come, 
Holy Spirit, come and illuminate and lead us into your truth. Lead us into your hope. Let us learn from each other as we have the chance to even to discuss. You say that we grow by the help of each other. And so, God, thank you for that gift of one another. And may, may we see you. As you told us that we see, if we've seen Jesus, we have seen the Father, the perfect reflection. So, Lord, may our vision be increased, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so today, we're going to be looking at the story. Uh, it, it's a parable of Jesus in Luke 16. It's about Lazarus uh, and a rich man. And this is a tough passage, and here's why. Because in this parable, there is imagery of some conscious torment, a conscious fire, a conscious thirst, of agony, of fire, a chasm of separation and torment. And this, this imagery is sometimes defined as hell, and the looming risk of living in some sort of conscious eternal torment. And that reality of that, even reading that, drowns out for many what this what the scripture and what Jesus has put before us, the message within this text, that the fear of damnation becomes the piercing theme of the, par- the passage. And so today, I want to give us permission, as we look at this, to permission to find greater depth in this passage. And in some ways, in that depth, to be able to stand back from maybe even potentially one of the view, the view that we have regarding hell. That might be stopping us because we're reading that into everything that looks close to that into the story. But that's the story we're going to go in today. Before you go there, I want to share three frameworks, three views of hell that the early church held. Now these would be views that were found within the pre-Nicene Creed before like the 4th century. And when you read the early creeds about unity, uh, they don't mention anything about hell. There's judgment, the glory to come, but nothing about hell. But they had these early frameworks within the church, and I want to go over those real quickly. But with that, in the early church, there was no doctrine on hell. There was no dogma within that time frame that said, this is what hell is like. This is exactly what it is. They didn't have that. But they had opinions. They had possibilities. They had views. But no dogma. They didn't demand that there was a specific belief about eternal damnation. And so the early Christians had three. And so let me share these with you. So the first one's called infernalism. Now this one within Western Christianity is probably when we think of hell the most closest to what most of us have heard or thought when it comes to hell. This reality of conscious eternal torment. That's infernalism. Uh, And and in this, there is a range of belief in hell as a literal place with actual flames um, to a spiritual space of anguish of the soul. For some, they even go so literal that they say that God in his power regenerates your skin so that it can continue to be consumed. Now, it it gets weird, right? So again, there is um, breadth to these views. Some get weird and, and some don't, but that's infernalism. That there could, it could be a literal place of actual flames or a spiritual place of anguish of the soul. And that hell is populated by the damned, those who refuse salvation through Jesus in their lifetime. The different scriptures that 
have been used to kind of paint some of this reality is uh, Jesus in Matthew 25, this parable of the sheep and the goats, and he separates them, and one towards eternal damnation and punishment, and the other towards the kingdom to come. Uh, Luke 16, the story that we're going to be looking at today with Lazarus uh, and the rich man. And in Revelation, there is this language of this burning fire of sulfur. So that's infernalism. The second one is annihilationalism. And that's not just being, you're just consumed. You, that perishing or death is synonymous with death or eradication. And so some believe that death itself is the end. And that only those who are prepared for everlasting life will experience resurrection. Uh, others within this category would believe something like um, that the wicked will be raised to life again. They'll be judged for their deeds and then they'll be damned to the lake of fire where they will be completely consumed and just life is done after that judgment. So rather than being supernaturally sustained to endure endless torture, um, both body and soul are destroyed. And that's found in Matthew 5. There's a reference to both body and soul being destroyed. And this references that a second death, and you can read about this language of a second death in Revelation 21. The third sort of category of view that the early church had to was this, uh, it's called universalism. And again, under universalism, there, are, there is an umbrella of thought. And so parts of the views under that umbrella of universalism would be this, that some believe that hell does not exist and that everyone goes to heaven. That just everybody does, and that's just what it happens to be. Uh, that some of the texts that kind of, like Matthew 5, talks about that God is good to the righteous and the unrighteous. But on the, like, the other end of the spectrum, um, within, under universalism, there is this idea of ultimate redemption. And in this, they believe in, in an existence of a lake of fire that many must pass through, if not all. Um, but for them, this is a cleansing fire. It's not a punitive fire. And within this cleansing fi fire, there is this restorative work that comes in the, way, in the way that a parent wants to discipline a child, they would be restored. And that within that restoration, they were prepared, that prepares one for God's presence. And that some believe that this actual fire is actually God's presence. And therefore, hell would eventually be emptied or its refining purpose would come to an end. And so that's a part of the universalism. And again, all of these were held within the early church. No one had to. Um, all these isms were there. Not one was right, not one was wrong. But they held them loosely because there wasn't a dogma. And they were like, ugh, they didn't know. For this one of universalism, there's some, uh, like 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in John 12, Jesus said, now is the time for judgment in the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And another text for those who kind of hold to this is 1 Timothy in, verse, in chapter 4, where it says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so within this, within all these views, they reflect the theological concerns for representing God's character right. And so with that becomes a challenge. How do you hold these? Because everybody is concerned with representing God's character right. And, and we're wanting to today too. And I want to I read something from Brad Jurisdick's book here. This is on page 7 about these, all these different views. 
And, it's, and he says this, the Bible doesn't allow us to settle easily on any of these isms. Perhaps that's because humankind needs all of these voices. Maybe God would have the wicked tremble before the infernalist passages and renounce their evil works. Maybe he would comfort the afflicted with the promise of justice in a day of accounting. And maybe he would have the elect embrace the broader hope of the universalist verses. That we joyfully hope for the best, but bow heart and knee to the justice and the mercy of God. And so therefore one voice cannot be absolute, absolutized without negating the others. So if that's the case, what, what do we... What do we do if we can't hold, if you're like saying, we're trying to be faithful to this, but there's a lot of presumption. And so with that, I want to hold out the presumptions and the possibilities. And uh, there there was this idea, and it's called the humility of hope. And today I want to offer that, this sort of humility of hope. And the humility is, is that we make a lot of presumptions, And whatever one of those isms or those places for infernalism or annihilationalism or universalism, there are presumptions that we make. And so we hold those presumptions with a lot of humility, meaning we don't know. But as followers of Jesus and the God who looks exactly like Jesus, who Jesus said, said, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. And because of that, for the way that Jesus lived... We have this massive amount of hope through the character of Jesus and the goodness of God. So what would it look like to have a humility of hope? To hold on to these views of the afterlife with this kind of humility. And uh, Brad talks about this thing called the twin possibilities. And the twin possibilities are this. And it's not a presumption. We're not presuming. It's just a possibility. And one of those possibilities is this. That there's a possibility of some version of judgment in hell. Some version of that. Man, there's a possibility of that. But the twin possibilities also says this. There's this possibility, the hope, that at the end of the day, no one need to suffer it forever or ever. Can we hold on? Is it possible to hold on to those things with humility? The hope of Jesus, that mercy will triumph over judgment. Hold it loosely. And if we did, what would that mean for us today? Peace comes not from certainty of knowing how it will all pan out, but from a solid hope in God's great love and mercy. And that's what we're going to hold out today. That Jesus' plan to save the whole world might actually work. May it be, Lord. That's what hope is. And so today... I want to give us permission to turn down the volume on the fear of eternal damnation. Turn down that volume of eternal damnation. That doesn't mean there's the possibility that it's not there. But for some, you've experienced PTSD from that, and it's at 11. And so we're not even going to be able to enter these words of Jesus in this story. So could could we turn it down? Just a bit. And not because we're saying definitively that it isn't real, but because the scriptures and the scriptures of God demands us to be able to look at them without being drowned out by fear. And so that's where I want to go today. May we not be drowned by fear. And so let's go to this text in Luke 16, which some have used 
as, um, as a way, as we said, as one of the scriptures that points to this um, infernalism idea. So Luke 16, 19 to 31, Jesus is telling this parable. He says he's telling this parable um, because of the love of money among the Pharisees. So, and here's the parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and clothed in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side or in his bosom is another way as they said it. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here, from there to us. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if, even, if, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced when someone rises from the dead. So in this, now, I, I love, I actually, I loved being ready for this and prepare for this. I'm going to take maybe 10 more minutes. And then you guys are going to jump into our discussions groups. This was so much fun. But in this, in this parable, I was taught something. I was like, oh, I, I, I didn't hold that. I was taught when I read the parables to read them just through the lens of Jesus. What did Jesus need to say for his original audience? And that Jesus was driving towards a, a point. But I was reading and I learned um, from Brad in this about three different layers within parables. And I want to share those layers with us as a way of being able to read this text. And that first layer is that. How did Jesus use this parable? What was the intended purpose of Jesus when he gave this parable? Because it wasn't to explain the caveat of eternal damnation. He had a point, and this parable was, was being spoken to the Pharisees who loved their money. And they had this view that they were blessed, and those people who didn't have money were not blessed because of their sins. But he dealt with them that because they loved their money. But, so what was the intended why did Jesus, so the first layer is, why did Jesus give this parable? What is the actionable truth that is being shared in this imagery? And it's this call to repent and to change our actions. Compassion for people suffering in what we would consider to be a hell right now. Not in the future, but the hell that people are living in now to be able to move towards them with compassion. Jesus' purpose in this parable was not to bring a definitive revelation on the nature of Hades. From the beginning of Luke, we see this immediate topical context. And he's speaking against the management of wealth and the, the idolatry against money and the state of the rich. And in this parable, Jesus is 
pointing out, he specifically targets the Pharisees who love their money. And when Jesus tells this story, he's not spiritualizing riches and poverty here. He is literally talking about those who have the rich and the poor of this age. And the reversal that will come in the next. And to his audience that he's speaking to, the question is not, are you rich or poor? Definitively, the answer is, you are rich. And I would say, potentially for us today, why Jesus used this parable what Jesus' intent was for it was to cry out to us, you're rich. You are rich. Period. And so now ask yourselves what Jesus was asking them. Who is the poor man at your gate? Who is the person who is suffering in the literal hell right now? That you're choosing not to see. For whatever reasons. That you're stepping over to move to the next thing. Jesus is moving people, wanting to invite them to see people. That was Jesus' intended use of this parable, calling to that kind of repentance of heart. Exhorting us to treat the poor with justice, mercy, and compassion. At least you, you experience this sort of fate to the tragic story of the rich man. So that's that first layer. Jesus is the tent, and for us, who is at your gate right now that you're stepping over, that we're meant to show compassion and mercy and kindness to. The second layer is Luke, who taught this parable. And, and, well, not, but Luke, who recorded it. Luke wrote it down. Luke collected all of these scriptures about the life of Jesus and put them in an order, inspired by the Spirit. But also, Luke had an experience. Luke was one of the disciples who was on the missionary journeys with Paul. And so Luke experienced firsthand and foremost this, this dividing wall, this barrier, this, these obstacles for where they were the Jewish believers of Jesus and then there were the Gentiles. Those were the people who weren't Jewish. And that wall that was built up between them and that hostility and how hard it was for the people who were believing in Jesus who had no Jewish heritage, who weren't performing any parts of the Jewish law to be welcomed, to, be, to, be, to sit at their table, to join them in their synagogues. That is what Luke experienced on the missionary journeys when he was with Paul. And in some way we could see, and we could see these within the text, we can see in Luke, there's these hints about this dividing wall that people have built up. There seems to be the secondary exhortation in Luke's use of this parable that is challenging, that's challenging these Christian Judaizers, Judaizers those were the, they, these were the Jewish people who embraced Jesus. They, they were like, oh, we, we are followers of Jesus, but they were thoroughly Jewish. But yet, they were marginalizing the Gentile believers. And so this story in some way can paint this upheaval of that. Let me, give you a, let me show you one. So um, Lazarus in this story, that's a Greek term. But the Hebrew version of Lazarus is Eleazar. And it's interesting, if you're Hebrew and you knew the term Eleazar, Eleazar was the non-Jewish servant of Abraham. So when Abraham had this whole family and no kids, Eleazar was the person who was his servant. And at one time, what was going to happen is that all, everything that Abraham had was going to go to Eleazar and his family. He was going to inherit everything. And this was, Abraham even said, it's going to go to Eleazar. Like that would, you know, like, oh, I wish I had a, a son. 
And God promised him a son, a descendant, a people, a nation. And he gives him a son. And then, but then Eleazar is totally dependent upon the hospitality and the kindness and the goodness of Abraham to care for him and his family. It's just interesting, isn't it? Here's this picture. It's this picture of one who is Abraham's servant, who's the same name as this. But not only that, it mentions this guy, you know, from um, having five brothers, the rich man. How interesting that Judah has five brothers. So if you knew about people who had five brothers, it was Judah. And Judah, the capital of Judah is Jerusalem. Judah was the, they were the kings. Like Judah is where the, the line of Judah, the scepter, where that comes from. So these are all kind of hints. So here we have this, this family of Judah where the capital of Jerusalem, which where the priestly system is set up and where the kings lived. And then you have this guy who was a servant who has nothing. And the tables are turned. So Luke had experienced these dividing walls that were being built up against people who were saying, hey, you can kind of be in, but not really. And so that's another use of this. That's another layer to this story. So the question could be, what dividing walls are you building up for others? Now in the New Testament, they even warned Gentiles. They said, hey, Gentiles, don't get puffy and arrogant because the same God who showed you mercy and flipped the tables and allowed you had a seat at the table, the same God who welcomed the Samaritan woman who begged for scraps at the table and healed her even though he said, my ministry is for the Jews, he can flip the tables. So don't be arrogant and don't build up any walls for anyone. Don't build the walls that Jesus has come to tear down. There's that beautiful text that's found in Ephesians. For he said, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What barriers are being set up for you? What dividing walls are keeping you from coming to Jesus? What groups have withheld certain things from others? Maybe not do that. The third, the third layer of this and this is really cool. I, I read this from St. the Layers of the Parables. You can find this article online. I actually found it from Brad Jersak. And he says this. He says the third layer of the parables is the punchline of the parables. And the punchline of, of all the parables, especially the kingdom parables, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus' death and resurrection speak into everything. And so the fullness of Jesus' parables were veiled throughout his life and ministry because beneath and beyond these messages was a layer of deeper meaning. There was an author by the name of Joseph Ratzinger who suggested this. And he said in the cross the parables are unlocked even more. And in this he pulls it from this text of John 16. And Jesus is speaking before he raises from the dead to his disciples, and he says this to them. He says, though I've been speaking to you figuratively, and in that many translate the figurativeness of Jesus to speak to parables and uh, proverbs. So even though I've been speaking to you figuratively through these things, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. That time was after his death and resurrection when we plainly saw what the Father was doing. That in the death and the resurrection, there's a layer into the parables where Jesus is speaking in. Yes, there was an original intent in that first layer. And that first layer was who is at your gate that you need to be showing mercy to. That you need to open your eyes, stop stepping over them, see them. 
because you cannot afford to be blind to them. Our God is not blind to the suffering. That second layer is about the dividing walls that people are building up. And this third one is the layer about the death and resurrection of Jesus that, is, that highlights in this text. And this is the one that blows my mind that I think is really beautiful. That what is concealed is revealed. And what was concealed in this parable that is revealed in the resurrection and the death of Jesus is this. This parable did, does have a story about this chasm and this place of death that the rich man has found himself in. And regardless, if anybody wants to go over there to them, they can't. And if he wants to go to the other side, they can't. And he is in agony in there, and there is a chasm. But the death and the resurrection of Jesus is this. At least we forget. Jesus went into that chasm and crossed it. Jesus went there. Jesus entered that chasm of death. And if you read into the scriptures, you can read into the epistles and the writers who said things like this. He went in there and he proclaimed the gospel to those who had died in the times of Noah. He went in there and he led captives out. He has the keys to Hades and to death. And eventually he's going to throw Hades and death into the eternal fire and burn that all up. Jesus is the one who enters the chasm, who can. So this parable says, nobody can enter the chasm and come back. Least you forget the death and resurrection of Jesus, who says, ah, no, I'm going to enter death. I'm going to enter death. And if we go to this beautiful parable, another parable of Jesus, he says when he enters death, he binds the strong man, and he plunders his house, and he leads captives free. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful story of Jesus. In the parable, the rich man says, oh, send somebody back from the dead. And it's almost like in the parable, they're like, oh, they won't listen. You think the answer is no. <laughs> what does Jesus do? He crosses the chasm. He comes back and he raises from the dead. And he announces the good news. To all that we'll hear. There's all these scriptures, if you want to dig into that narrative, if you want to see this beauty, this beauty of what Jesus has to say through his death and his resurrection to this reality of death, you can find it. You can find it in the first Peter where Jesus preached to the dead the good news. You can find it in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 21, where um, where it says, for Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body to be made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. He went there. And in Ephesians 4, it talks about that the one who has ascended on high, that he led, he led captive the captives. And he gave, them, he gave gifts to the people. This is Ephesians 4. And he says, he sinned. What does that mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. Oh, here's one plundering. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. Again and again, I have these people asking this question that Jesus is in Revelation 1. He says, I'm the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever war. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. What will Jesus do with those keys? 
What do you think Jesus would do with those keys? Bind people? No. That's where our hope comes in. That mercy, the triumph over judgment. Jesus is the one who has crossed the chasm and leads prisoners free. We can have hope. So Lord, would you speak to us on all these layers however you want, and as our friends go into discussion, would you guide them, take a hold of them, and guide them to your life, that we would not live in fear, but that love, perfect love, would have its way. So Lord, come. Amen. All right, we got some time for some discussion. So leaders who are leading discussion, this is our chance where we, Trent, Trent, work, Trent and I were just banging and banging, trying to figure out how to lead a great discussion. He worked so hard. Uh, thank you, Trent. So we put together those questions that we think that will, that will just have great discussion we can learn from each other. So leaders, those of you who are facilitating those questions, would you stand up, raise your hand? And we're just going to say, come around these leaders. So raise your hand up. Come around them. We're going to take 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Come in there for a discussion. Join with them. So, so come around them now. We're going to discuss. You're, no one's going to get sent to hell. You're going to be okay. So we got the people, we got Sandra up in here, we got Abby right in here, we got Trent in the blue right there. We have Chris right in there, and then we have Jill. So come around them, come around them, they'll lead you into some great discussion. Hello, so if you're seeing on Facebook, I'm leading this group, or Zoom rather, I'm leading this group. Since everyone's finished breakfast now, we can go on our trip to the lake now. Walk along. Walk along. Can you guys hear me?